The reason why the disciples were so fearless, as we've been studying in our, Acts, uh, our time with Acts, is because they believed that their God was unstoppable. Uh, it had been proven to them that their hope was unbreakable, and they had learned in the very short time of his existence that the church, their church, our church, that we're still a part of, is, was, and still is unshakable. Those have been some things we've been uh, talking about and focusing on in our time in Acts over the last couple of uh, studies uh, from chapter really four onward as the disciples were put on trial, as they were told to stop, as they were threatened, as they were beaten, as they, were, uh, try, as they tried to silence them uh, inside, outside, all the opposition. Uh, they were fearless because they knew their mantra, their anthem, uh, was their God's unstoppable, their hope is unbreakable, and the church would therefore be unshakable. Now, there was plenty of shakes and plenty of quakes. Uh, if you've read the book of Acts, if we've, uh, in our study so far, we've seen uh, that there has been plenty of opposition, both uh, from obvious foes and from assumed friends, which was the really discouraging part. The people that should have been with them were often against them, and of course, the foes that were against Jesus were there to be against uh, the church. Now, when pressed, why do you continue to do this? Why do you continue to put yourself at risk? What was their response? We must. We must put God first, even if it seems at times, even if it puts us last, even if it takes our life, there is something worth dying for. Now, while the religious leaders of Judah balked at their assertion of boldness, even suggesting that time would prove that God was on their side, which is what they kind of decided in a meeting a couple of weeks ago. The disciples held on to that same confidence, yet theirs was rooted not in some uh, hope-so, but in a no-so faith because Jesus Christ, the resurrection promise, flowing from his grave to their hearts, uh, they were filled with his spirit and they were made bold and they had certainty that they could not and they would not lose. Even as they were wounded and scarred for his name, remember they rejoiced. Satan, of course, was not about to let up, though. While he would continue to attack them externally, he also raised up an internal conflict. Uh, Brother Greg taught us last week uh, about uh, that conflict that rose up, that challenges were not just on the outside. Of course, there are plenty out there, but also they come and they arise in here, in the fellowship of believers, where they really shouldn't come uh, to be an issue, but yet Satan works um, from every angle and from every corner. And we saw last week, though, we get to witness in real time that the church did not uh, allow this to offset them one bit. They use this as an opportunity, which is really awesome to observe. They use that challenge from inside as an opportunity to develop internal leadership. Uh, again, once, once again, we've seen this over and over again. What seemed like a problem actually helped propel the church forward. That what seemed to be a problem that may could have set the church back a little bit uh, actually was an opportunity to establish some infrastructure, to establish a, a governance, governing system that would help the church in the future days. Again, the church is being forged in and under the fire. They really weren't thinking too deeply about the church governing body and infrastructure when they were just getting started, but as they ran into these issues, it gave them a chance to set these things in place, which would become very important as they would, you know, not just grow in Jerusalem, but spread to Antioch and, and around the world. Now, we see the institutions of deacons, servants, and lay leaders. Um, it's meant to help the church and organize ministry in areas and issues that arise while freeing the disciples to continue preaching. Of course, even the deacons were to be ready and, and proved to be ready, uh, given the opportunity to share the word, which is what one of them does, and that's who we're introduced to at the end of six, going into seven. The spotlight 
comes to Stephen. Now, we've heard about Stephen. We've sang about Stephen all of our lives. We know about him, yet he's really only featured in these two chapters of the Bible. Yet this is a pivotal point in the book of Acts. This is a breakout chapter, and he's a breakout character in the book of Acts. And I want to kind of talk about Stephen. Um, Stephen is to lay people. Stephen is to Gentiles and all church members what Peter was to Jewish believers. As in Peter is the go-to guy, the example for the Jewish people, the Jewish believers. And Stephen is a guy that we can look to. Uh, we can look to as Gentiles, but also you all can look to as church members, and I'm one of you, as an example for us all to follow. He was not someone that came on the scene with a degree or with some sort of anointing. He was not someone that was sold or was celebrated as a gifted man that was called to ministry. He was a volunteer that would, was willing to help in this area that seemed to be minuscule, um, you know, a menial task that proved to be important that propelled him to an all-important opportunity. Stephen is a reminder that all of us have a story to tell. Someone that we did not know about, all of a sudden we meet him and he is on trial. That tells me that you and I all have a story to tell because Jesus has changed your life in as valid as a way as he changed the disciples' lives. We may not have been there for his earthly ministry. We may be detached from the earthly ministry. We may not have witnessed the miracles that Peter, James, and John, the others got to see, but our stories are still rooted in what Jesus began to do on earth and continues to do through the church. Our stories are still tethered to the redemption story, and your story is just as valid, and your witness is just as important as anyone who has come before you, because you are carrying that torch forward. As Stephen carried it forward, so are we called to carry it forward. Now, his testimony really resonates with me. Because it's not really that personal, as in he doesn't talk about how he came to faith and what he, what he went through before and, and during, yet the story is personal in that he knows the Bible so well, and he's able to tell God's redemption story from book to book, chapter to chapter, from cover to cover, and he's able to be a vessel through which the gospel can be preached, and that is what we're all called to do and to be. Now, in chapter 7, we're going to see Stephen pretty much start at the beginning of faith and preach what he, uh, what, preach that now um, the church represents for what God has started, started years before, um, that what God began decades, centuries, hundreds, thousands of years before was being fulfilled through the local church. Uh, now, not to get too far ahead, Stephen, of course, was arrested for his ministry, which is something I want to touch on before we get into the text tonight. He was arrested for his ministry. No one really knew him for, for a preacher, as a great preacher. He, he may very well have been. But he was arrested because he was involved in ministry. And this is something I think can inspire every one of us tonight. Stephen didn't make a name for himself preaching. He wasn't on TV. He wasn't a, an evangelist, as many would expect someone that was famous as him would be. He wasn't an apostle Peter. He wasn't even an apostle Paul. He was just a person willing to serve his local church in a time of need, like every one of us can be. He was simply living the life of a Christian, and guess what? That made him a willing vessel that God could work through, and that shows me that every one of us could be a Stephen in our generation. God was willing to use Stephen's availability and willingness, and that is what is required of us, availability and willingness, and God can preach the gospel through our life like he did through Stephen's life. Stephen may have not been an apostle or had the gift of preaching like Peter or John, but he did receive the Spirit, and he was being used like them, and you can be as well. I, I think that's the story of Acts, don't you? That 
here we find Stephen, a newbie to the faith, immediately seeing the joy in serving, instantly seeing a cause worth giving up everything for. Now, Stephen, of course, a, a newbie and, and not necessarily an apostle like the rest, he, from the enemy's vantage point, was an easy target. And I think that's why they pinned accusations on him to trick him up in his words because the idea was we can potentially make an example out of this guy and hopefully discourage and dispel the whole movement because we might have not been able to knock Peter and John off their, you know, off their pulpit, but this guy, he's new, he's fresh, he's a novice, we'll knock him down in a minute and maybe that'll make everybody back up a few steps. Now, they are very intentional with their, their accusations. Remember from last week, they come at Stephen and they say, or they accuse Stephen as wanting to change the law or, or, or change what Moses has started. And they accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple. That's what verse 14 told us. That they said that this man says that Jesus will destroy this place and change the way we've been doing things. Now, this actually plays into not just Stephen's testimony, but the overall message of Acts in Christianity. They accuse Stephen of disparaging the temple and denouncing Jewish traditions. Now, not that that should be that offensive to Christians, because that's, we don't tie our faith to a building on the other side of the world. We don't tie our faith to traditions that were put in place thousands and thousands of years ago. Stephen claimed, they accused him of, at least of claiming, that Jesus changed how God is encountered and changed how God's experienced. And that's exactly what Jesus did, and we should be thankful for that. The council was in no wise prepared for Stephen's defense, though, as he takes them to task and actually confronts them in how Judaism had it wrong from the beginning. Greg mentioned this so powerfully last week, and I want to launch from this point into our message tonight. In verse 15, it says that Stephen's face was glowing like an angel. Uh, Stephen's glowing face is meant to be a callback to Moses' glowing face. And while they accused him of wanting to change what Moses started, He's really a continuation. As in, as Moses walked off the mountain from being in God's presence, so was Stephen in God's presence. And what's better about Stephen's experience is he is a really a true realization of what Moses just got a brief taste of. Stephen is living in the presence of God. He's not tied up behind some mountain. He's not locked away in some temple. He's everywhere, anywhere God's people are. And even in this crisis, Stephen had the presence of God. They saw Moses as cementing the temple model. They thought, well, Moses on the mountain, the temple was the replacement of that. But really, Moses was previewing a different model that was not confined to certain places and certain people temporarily. Stephen's defense is really about how this came, uh, how, how that old model came to an end and how a new model was being ushered in. See, this is kind of the contrast we see in Acts that we see that Stephen's going to really hammer on, hammer down. That the temple model, Judaism, they believed that God could only be experienced by certain people in a certain place at certain and in limited time, which we understand that model. The temple was the only place you could experience God, but only if you were a Levite, if you were a priest of the tribe of Levi, and if it was your turn, could you experience God, and you couldn't be back there with God long, and it was very limited in the capacity that you could experience him, and if you were not in the right standing with God, you may not even survive it. That was the temple model. That was Judaism, that most of the Jews were on the outside looking in, hoping that they could vicariously experience God through someone else. But Jesus in Christianity is what God was aiming toward from the very beginning, that it would be open to all people, or God would be accessible by all people, no matter where they are, at all times. 
That, that is by the indwelling presence of God in the internal power of God. See, in this moment, God affirmed his choice of Stephen as he always does when his people are obedient. His affirmation of Christians is always in the Holy Spirit's presence and work in our lives. There's no denying that. Moses came down the mountain, but Stephen was living on the mountain. Because in Christ, we aren't just afforded brief moments of God's presence. We live in his presence, and his spirit lives in us. And what burned the religious leaders up, and what infuriated Satan so much was, that here is a man that we just met, who was just anointed for the ministry, who was just a volunteer at a food, you know, at, at, a, at a giving out food to the, to the widows. Here is a man that we just met, and now his face is glowing like an angel and he is full of the presence of God. This is not what Satan wanted people to know was possible. That religion held this idea of, God's, of experiencing God back to just a few people on a certain time in a certain place. But Stephen proved that Christianity had ended those days, that something greater was finally here. The Spirit enables us to face the enemy, to combat the lies the enemy tells on us, which is what Stephen's going to do so powerfully. Now, we notice that Stephen does not use worldly tactics. He does not dismiss these attacks, and he doesn't deny them, but he comes at them with the truth, and that's God's Word. Sometimes we feel like we have to resort to the world's playbook to combat against the world, but Stephen's going to teach us that we don't have to do that, and we shouldn't do that. I think sometimes we think Christian, the Christian way is just to bow out and just take whatever the world throws at us, but that's not so. Every challenge is an opportunity to make God known. And we shouldn't dread the opposition that we face, because we will face it. And we aren't just to bow out and just let whatever said be said, but we aren't to go against the enemy as he comes against us. There's a better way, which is what Stephen's going to teach us, which Jesus, of course, primed his disciples for this. Back in Luke 12, he says, Don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you what you should say. But let me make it very clear. How does the Holy Spirit speak to us? Through God's Word. What does the Holy Spirit teach us? God's Word. So how do you think we should combat the enemy? With God's Word. What do we go against the enemy with? Not our own words, not the world's Word, but the Word of God. Because the Bible is God's holy, inspired word. And from page to person, and from us to those that we speak to, God's word moves, and we should lean on it and amplify it in these crucial moments. You say, I don't know about that, Justin. I'm just, you know, I, I don't know if I could be that. I don't know if I'm capable of that. Well, John, disciple, Apostle John, wrote to his uh, followers years later, and he reiterates what Jesus taught him. He says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So what does John tell his followers, not just the men, but also the women? You know the Lord, and his word is in you, and this is how you overcome the enemy when you face opposition, and you will face opposition. You know, our response in crises and challenges, especially when the devil is spitting fire at us, reveals just what, if any, and how much, if any, of God's Word is in our hearts. Now think about that for a minute. Our response in crises, 
Our response when the enemy is lashing out at us, when he uses somebody to come against us with all sorts of accusations and all sorts of lies and all sorts of just things to fire us up, when the devil is spitting fire at us, our response and the way we respond reveals what and how much, if any, of God's word is in us and in our hearts. So Christians, I want us to take Stephen's example and I want it to be our new standard. Let's not fight fire with fire. Let's use water, which is a novel idea, water against fire, the water of God's word to put out the fire. When we let the Holy Spirit put the word of God in us and bring it out of us, a holy hush will come on those who oppose and instigate trouble. Now, I say all this ahead of time because we don't have time to read all of chapter 7, but all of chapter 7 is just Stephen opening the Bible and saying, this is what God has done, this is what God has said. And I guarantee it, church, there is something from God's Word that applies to whatever opposition you're facing. There is some story, there's some teaching, there's some example, there's some Word of God that you can always use against the enemy as he comes against you. So do not be afraid that you will be without ammunition when you face opposition. Now, I'm not saying it'll convince everyone, because I think we know how Stephen's story ends, don't we? I'm not saying the enemy will tuck, and, will tuck tail and run. I am saying that, what, that this is what challenges are for, and this is very important. This is why we face challenges like this, and this is so marvelous that Stephen apparently knew this ahead of time, and he was so young to the faith. When we face challenges, you know why we're facing those challenges? so that we might be a witness for God. Even if we suffer in the flesh, we won't lose where it counts. Now, I want to preface this one, with one more passage of Scripture. This is how Jesus prepared the disciples for moments like this. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and will bring before kings and governors. What does that say? For my name's sake. So why are you coming up against this opposition? For the, net, for, for the sake of God. For the cause of God. Why, you know, what does that mean? Let Jesus explain. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now think about this. Stephen is bearing witness 2,000 years later. Quite an opportunity. This will be your opportunity. So settle it ahead of time before your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. So go in and be ready when you face opposition with how you're going to respond. Now we've already decided it's with God's word. You can read chapter 7. It's all God's word. Jesus again says, I will give you, I will give your mouth, give you a mouth of wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. As in they can't argue with God's word. The devil hates it. So don't give him something else that isn't going to work against him. You'll be delivered up even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Now, I, don't, I know you don't want to, but keep that last part in mind. Some of you will put, be put to death. You'll be hated by all, my, by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Well, hey, how's that work, Jesus? I mean, how am I going to die but my hair? You know, I mean, I don't think hair lasts in the grave, and that's not what you're talking about anyway, Jesus. How are you telling me that I'm going to die, but I'm not going to perish? By your endurance, you will gain your lives. 
even if it costs you your life, you will gain something greater. Now, keep all that in mind because we know what happens to Stephen, don't we? Stephen is ready for this moment in Acts 7. God's affirming in his readiness and his willingness. I think Stephen's witness is an extreme example of what we all ought to be ready to do because he covers the history of faith to prove his case. He doesn't just use some of the word. He doesn't just twist certain parts and pieces. He uses all of the word, and he lets it stand on its own feet. Now, again, we're not going to read this whole chapter because it's quite long, and we know the story that Stephen covers. But it's essentially, Stephen goes beat by beat through the major narratives of the Old Testament. He begins with Abraham. He recounts Israel's history, but he does so with a twist. He tells the story of Israel having fully understood the end game because he believed it was all going somewhere, and where it was going was Jesus and the church. And he believes and he preaches that it was promised from the very beginning. And that emphasis on promise. So I've got a couple verses I've got, I want us to focus on. Verse 5 and 17, he mentions this word promise. Now, in 5... He says this about Abraham after he called Abraham to go to a land he'd never been to before. Look at this. God gave him no inheritance in this land, not even enough to set his foot on, as in Abraham never had any property to his name. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him for a possession into his descendants after that. So God says, Abraham, God made, or Stephen says, God made Abraham a promise. And the promise was bigger than land, and it was bigger than children. But if you read Genesis, it seems like all it is is about children and land. And Stephen says, no, no, no. It was bigger than that. Because in that moment when God called Abraham and he promised him he would give him a child that would bless the whole world, that was the beginning of the Christian faith. As Abraham trusted God, God promised him a descendant greater than just Isaac, which nothing wrong with having a great family. But hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family, but I'm giving you something more important than that. I am going to send a Savior through you to the world. And yes, I'm going to build a nation through you, but I'm going to build a church through him and through you I'm going to give a, a single people something to look forward to but through Jesus I'm going to give all the world something to look forward to through to you I'm going to give a little corner of the world a place to call its own but through Jesus I'm going to give the whole world a kingdom to call their home Stephen mentions a promise that God made to Abraham and his people verse 17 he kind of goes on and talks about how that promise led God's people to Egypt and notice how he kind of draws this out. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Now again, this is building towards Israel. But again, it's building towards something bigger than Israel. It's building toward this church that Stephen was a member of. It would be teased briefly, lightly experienced in the process through the, the process of building Israel. But across the days of Abraham, Moses, and David, and the likes, it would all be a building process toward a greater community, toward a global community. Now, if you read this whole chapter, you'll notice that Stephen makes specific mention of resistance within Israel, within every generation of Israel, or so that God was actually trying to do. And I think he's doing this because here he stands with opposition from Israel, and throughout the story of Israel, he, makes, he goes on to highlight 
how Israel always had a majority of its people that weren't on the same page with the one that God was using and God was making a difference through. For example, in verse 9, we see that he makes this point. The patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So in the days of Joseph, when God was doing something through Joseph, of course, he would take him to Egypt. He would use Egypt to reach the world. Yet Joseph's brothers weren't on the same page. They were against him, just like Stephen stood here against this trial, against this opposition. He says, well, this isn't anything new because Joseph had his own brothers against him. And again, this was like twisting the knife in their backs because they were seeing Stephen saying, hey, I'm like Joseph. Jesus was, of course, bigger than me. Jesus was like Joseph. I'm like Joseph. The church is similar. Yet they had opposition just like y'all were opposing us. Down in verse 27, you, you can read where Moses was opposed by the very people that, that he was sent to lead. They wouldn't allow him to be their, their, their deliverer. And they say, you know, who made you king over us? And Moses goes and spends some time in the desert. And once again, Moses deals with a generation of murmurers and bickerers as he led them out of Egypt. Even after he took them out across the Red Sea, they still wanted to go back to Egypt. They still weren't always on the same page with Moses. And again, Stephen is trying to say, this resistance isn't anything new, which should give us a warning because even as members of the church, there's that tendency in you and I to resist what God is doing, isn't there? Now, in these conflicts, you can sense the same difference which existed between Stephen and his critics. And as you read the whole story, all along, God desired a relationship with his people, and his desire was to dwell in their hearts. Now, Stephen, where he breaks with the history of Israel, as they would tell it, is when he gets down to Solomon. He gets down to David and Solomon. David wanted to build a house for God. Solomon built the house for God. Stephen says, all y'all have ever wanted to do is lock God away in some holy place. All y'all have ever wanted to do is keep him to yourself and make sure nobody else was allowed in. And you've missed the point that God intended from the beginning. You missed the boat. And Christianity is here to restore God's original intent, not just to Israel, but also to the whole world. Acts 7 sits at a crossroads in history. As the focus is going to shift from only Jews in Jerusalem in and around the temple to also Gentiles under the whole world in and around gatherings of people. That was God's idea all along. That was God's intent all along. That was his desire from the very beginning. That he would not be locked away in brick and mortar, frozen in traditions and customs of a time and place. Stephen is signaling that something new is on the horizon. Now, why does God use Stephen to communicate this message? Why didn't he use Peter? Now, Peter, of course, hammered these same ideas, but Stephen literally opens the Bible and goes from Genesis to the prophets and says, this is what God was doing from the beginning, and we, or the nation, y'all missed it. Why is God using Stephen? Christianity was more than just an extension of Judaism, featuring the same cast of characters. Nothing wrong with those cast of characters, Peter, John, you know, James, and, and, and Andrew, Bartholomew, and all those guys. They were just as important. They were included. It was great that they were still along for the ride. But Christianity was a brand new movement. It was literally unhitched. It was literally something that whether you knew the story of Israel or not, you were invited in. Because this is the point in the story where from Acts 8 on, all of a sudden they start going, 
beyond Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they're going to encounter people who did not know all that Stephen had just taught. And they're not going to go and make sure that they know all that before they tell them about Jesus because the point from the beginning was God wants to have a relationship with people. God wants to dwell in their hearts. And because of Jesus, there wasn't anything else required for that to be achievable and that to be possible. That Jesus came and removed all the barriers. And yes, with respect to the history, with respect to what came before it, that's all important and that needs to be taught and learned. But it's all about leading up to this moment. That Christianity and the church is a brand new movement. And it's open to anyone willing to start. And you know why I make a big deal about that? Because not everybody has the same church story that we have. Don't you see how, this, how we as the church, as we've been around so long, we can easily kind of take the role of the Jewish traditions, kind of not willing to kind of, you know, allow others and include others. And this is what happens in Acts 15 when the church does get established because all of a sudden they start wanting to do what the Jewish tradition had done before and paywall people from coming to God and say, well, you got to do this first and you got to do that first and I don't know if you can be included because you don't know what I know. Don't you see how the church can repeat these same mistakes? And why does God use Stephen to signal this and preach this message? Because he was brand new to the movement. He was a breakout star in the movement, just like anybody else can be. What is the prerequisite? That we come to faith through Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus is God with us, Jesus died for our sins, and that Jesus gives us the Spirit in the presence of God. That is all that matters, and that is what makes a difference. That is what Stephen gets to by the end of this message, is that God wanted to dwell with people. And he says to these Jewish leaders, you all have the history and the story. You have such potential to fulfill this desire of God. All of this was building up to what we now see on the precipice of breaking out and spreading out in the whole world. And he says to these Jewish leaders, do y'all want to stand in the way of what God wants to do? I don't think you do. Listen to how he signs off. Beginning in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land, possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, whom found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So Stephen was building up toward this moment. Because remember what, the, what was their accusation? Well, he wants to tear the temple down. And Stephen says, I've told you all this story. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. Because y'all are accusing me of wanting to tear down the temple. He said, I don't care if I, I have no problem with the temple. It's the history of Judaism. But let me make this very clear. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. If It's fine to have the temple. But if you think God is stuck in that building, whew then I think y'all are the ones that need to be hoping the temple goes away. Heaven is my throne, he says. The earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Who was he referencing? The people that opposed Joseph, the people that opposed Moses, the people that, the prophets that opposed, or the people that opposed the prophets in the Old Testament. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Are they killed, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the, direction of angels and have not kept it again Stephen builds up to this moment and he says listen y'all the temple was just a stopgap until something greater could come and indeed something greater than the temple is here and that something is a someone Jesus came and preached the gospel for everyone, which beginning with Acts 8, will see extend beyond Israel. Years later, Ephesians 2 would say this, and Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those that were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So how do we have access to God? Through his spirit. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So what was the Old Testament all about? Building or bringing a family of God together. A nation. With all respect to Israel, they're still God's people, but there's something better than a nation. It's called the church. And this movement that God has built, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So with respect to the old, obviously with respect to the new, Jesus is the cornerstone in whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. So what is better than the temple in Israel? It's the temple that persists, consists of God's people. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place. So where does God dwell in the hearts of his people? You are being built together into a dwelling place by the Spirit. They resisted this. Stephen acknowledges that they're resisting it. And we symbolically, I think, we resist this same notion sometimes. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed, or ganashed, as I used to say, they gnashed at him with their teeth. So they just made ugly faces at him, which is... Y'all never make those faces at me. But God, you know, I shouldn't do that. Stephen was in far worse than I'll ever be in as a preacher. They gnashed their teeth at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, which is the whole point of this sermon, isn't it? They were trying to hold on to their traditions because they believed that was the only way that they could experience God. And here's the man they opposed, full of the very Spirit that they hoped they would one day experience themselves. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Now, why is that important? Because where did the Jews believe the glory of God was? Behind a veil in the back of the temple, only accessible and witnessable by one person on a single day of the year. And here is Stephen in front of these people as they gnash their teeth at him, full of the Holy Spirit, seeing the glory of God, and here is Jesus standing at the right hand with the power of God. And then Stephen says, look. Do you think they look? I don't, I don't think so. Look, 
I see the heavens open. You know what's better than the veil open? Heaven open. And you know what I see? I see the Son of Man in His glory at the right hand of God. The one y'all killed, I see alive and standing at the throne of the God you so desperately want to experience. I have Him. I see Him. I wish you could. I wish you would. Jesus, standing. Why is that important? When Jesus sat down at the holy place before God, he was the sacrifice. He sat down on the mercy seat. He is, of course, the mercy seat. He is our atonement. So when he sat down at the altar, he sat down at the throne of God, that was a symbol of the sacrifice being placed where it needs to be to make everyone in good standing with God. So the idea of Jesus standing is an idea that he is sending judgment because that mercy seat is vacant. So in a sense, this standing of Jesus is a warning of judgment to Stephen's accusers. Not to all Jewish people at all time, by no means, but to these Jewish leaders who had already crucified Jesus, yet was given this invitation. Yet this is a symbol of judgment to those that resisted and rejected. It's an opportunity for those that are willing to listen but it's judgment to those that have made their minds up. Of course, we often hear this text preached and we kind of want to think it as Jesus giving a standing ovation to Stephen. And of course, that may be the case. That's reading into the text a little bit, but I think it's appropriate. So here is Jesus in a biblical way witnessing to what Stephen has just done. As in signaling admiration and, and endorsement to Stephen and his generation that would be willing to do the same as he did. You know, I believe this text is relevant to every generation that reads it because we're confronted with the true spirit and the true intention of the church. Let's read the next few verses. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man who led this attack named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with the sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen died for a Christianity where God dwells with us and moves within us moves broader and beyond our own set limitations and ideas. He died a similar death that Jesus did, symbolizing he lived a similar life and preached a similar message that Jesus did. Stephen embodied the promises of Jesus that living for this moment was worth it to the very end. Just think about it. As Stephen faced death, who's full of the Holy Spirit, face to face with Jesus and free from the fear in God's power, what better ending could you ask for? And make sure you know it, Stephen lets it known to these people, oh, I'm not dying. 59 says, he says, hey, I want y'all to hear this. I'm literally just going somewhere better. The very thing they so desperately wanted, Stephen had. Why couldn't they get it? They were just so hung up on their traditions. They were so hung up on the way that things had always been. Yet they only had half the story. Of course, we know the whole story. The temple that they so desperately clung to would not stand. 
for 30 more years. Rome would come in and would literally remove it stone by stone and throw them off the mountain and burn that temple to the ground. Judaism would end in 70 AD. But Christianity, still going strong. And it's not going to stop. And there in the crosshairs of all of this is a young man named Saul. He rejected Stephen's message, but could he resist the spirit that worked through Stephen's death? Spoiler alert, he couldn't. That's how powerful and important Stephen's witness and message would be as we look back through history and time. Remember what Jesus said? You'll be doing this for my sake? Remember he says, they may take your life, but through your endurance you will gain true life? Stephen, of course, was going to heaven, but before he went, I think he laid eyes on this man. And he knew that something was about to change. And isn't it incredible? The one who fought against it would soon be fighting for it. Do you think this would have happened without Stephen being so bold? Preaching the whole word as he did, standing against the enemy, not backing down, but doing so with the truth? Do you think you have the next chapter in the next chapter in the, next, the rest of the book of Acts? Do you think you have the history of the church? Do you think we're sitting here if Stephen doesn't do what he did because he was looking eye to eye with the one who carried the stones and he looked at this man knowing that he was not dying in vain because as he was being attacked by Saul, Saul would soon be joining his team. In a sense, when Stephen prays, Father, forgive them, don't lay this on their charge, he was praying for this one the one who wanted to keep God in one place would soon be taking God all over the place. Job well done, Stephen. Where Stephen lays down his life, Saul would find and pick his up from one breakout character to another. As Christianity is about to break out of Jerusalem and take on the world, it's in this moment that history is made and that everything changes. Because Stephen was willing to do what, dare I say, many of us would not be willing to do. To defend the faith and stand for Jesus. Of course, ultimately, Jesus would stand for him and would invite him into eternal life. And would produce the conversion of a man who would lead so many thousands. And of course, through him, the rest of the world would come to know the Savior that Stephen died for. I think that was worth it, don't you? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for tying this all together for us. Thank you for Stephen's testimony, for his example. He stood for the truth. He preached the word. When he was attacked and lied about and opposed, he just stood up and preached the Bible. And he confronted these people that were so bent and tied down by their traditions and their religion they didn't realize that the thing they were holding they were trying to stand for was actually holding them back lord thank you for stephen's boldness for his faith and his fearlessness that he was willing to go to the very point of death that he might would stand for you and lord thank you for giving us that image of you standing for him and thank you lord for giving the apostle paul an invitation through Stephen's death, that you would impact his soul so powerfully that ultimately he would eventually come to his knees and give up. He couldn't do it any longer. Instead of fighting against, he would fight for. I have to believe that that all started 
with Stephen's witness. Father, thank you for this example. Thank you for showing us that we can be just like Stephen. And we might change our world just like Stephen did. One person at a time. And all along the way, you'll be with us. Because you are not confined to a place or a day or a time. You are with us always, everywhere, no matter what. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.